Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I took her from her mom and held her in my arms. Something happened that I did not expect and had never experienced. It was like I could see a whole span of a life in an instant. I said to Nancy, this little strand of red hair will turn gray and then white. This soft, rosy skin will grow wrinkled and mottled, and this pliable little body will get bent with age. She will grow old, and then we will die and be gone. And then she will die and be gone. His wife Nancy said, let me hold the baby. You're going to creep her out. (laughs) Well, this morning, I don't want to creep you out, but we're going to continue looking at the story of Lazarus, And in that, we're going to see how Jesus views death. You know, people are so slow to embrace the brevity of this life. You feel a pain in your chest or a lump in your breast, and all of a sudden, doctors are sliding you into one of those tubes or taking chest x-rays. Then people will ask, am I going to die, doctor? And the straight answer is yes, it's only a question of when. The doctor has little control over that. He may be able to help with the when, but in the end, he can't determine the if. And so those who don't know Christ will try about anything. In Scottsdale, Arizona, there's a company called the Alcor Extension Foundation, which is the largest cryonics foundation in the world. For a healthy fee, your body can be frozen at the point of death. Your blood will be filled with anticoagulants, and then you'll be stored in a capsule of liquid nitrogen that will freeze you to minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit. Then you can be reheated later like a frozen cheese pizza, and advanced medical technology can cure whatever disease had ailed you. Or if you don't like being cold, a Seattle company called Immortal Genes offers eternity in a paperweight. For just $50, they will preserve your DNA in a little box for the next 10,000 years so that it can be cloned whenever it's convenient. They also offer a 10,000-year money-back guarantee. (laughs) So it's hard to say who would collect if things go wrong. Bottom line, barring the rapture, death is in all of our futures, and it leaves many people truly terrified. I always think of the Woody Allen quip when they asked him if he was afraid to die. He replied, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Mel Blanc was the voice behind all the cartoon characters in Looney Tunes. At the end of every show, you would see Porky Pig pop up with the same send-off. That's all, folks. Porky was saying the show's over, and now it's time to go home. Well, Mel Blanc died a few years ago, and believe it or not, do you know what his family put on his tombstone? That's all, folks. But the question facing us this morning is, is that all? You see, God has put eternity into your heart, and that tells us that this life isn't all that there is. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. If you remember from our last time together, Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus that Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, was sick. Jesus' reply, 
He said simply that this sickness will not end in death, but for the glory of God. It literally says, he loved Lazarus and therefore he stayed where he was till he died. It's one of the most startling passages you can find anywhere in the scripture. Think about that for a moment. He loved Lazarus, therefore he stayed put and did absolutely nothing. Do you know what that teaches us? Jesus Christ sometimes delays to the point where the human mind can no longer see how he could possibly fulfill that promise. This has been called the dark side of God's grace. Now, the dark side of God's grace is that a sovereign God who is in control of everything stands back and sees all things. This means sometimes he uses the things he allows as much as he uses the things that he directs. Now, if God is truly omnipotent, if he can prevent things from happening as well as causing things to happen, then all things are laid at his feet. And this means that we sometimes will not understand what he is up to. We won't always be able to comprehend why he doesn't answer this prayer or why he doesn't show up when we want him to. Of course, this is nothing new. And God has laid it out in his word, so we shouldn't really be shocked. Now, most Christians avoid the Old Testament to their own detriment. The reason why I say that is we are given biographies of the people of the Old Testament. Now, why would God do that? Because the Old Testament stories are pictures of New Testament truths. What do I mean? Well, I've heard many sermons from Hebrews chapter 11, yet rarely do I ever hear anyone touch on verse 13. And speaking of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and Jacob, the writer of Hebrews says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. What? You mean God promised something they never got? Well, that's what the writer implies. Listen to the whole verse. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were pilgrims and strangers on this earth. The clear teaching from this is they did not get the promise during their lifetimes. But through the eyes of faith, they saw it and greeted it from afar. How come? Because they knew that this life is not all that there is. And because of that, they could still die in faith. That means they didn't die in disappointment. They didn't die crying, where's God? Why has God let me down? No, they died in faith having seen God's promises fulfilled in a better place. And in another time still yet to come. Do you know who else has to do that? Us. Now, there are a lot of New Testament promises that we can grab onto and apply right now, but not all of them. Well, like what? How about the promise found in Revelation 21.4, where we are given this promise? 
And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have all passed away. Like the Old Testament saints, we are looking ahead in faith to the day when all things will be made right. But let's be honest. Sometimes in the middle of our suffering, it can be pretty tough to remember that. The danger is when we face similar circumstances, we can tend to only get angry with God. And we can forget that this world is not our home. We have to remind ourselves that God, all of God's promises aren't going to be fulfilled here. There are Christians all over the world who are persecuted, who go to bed hungry, who don't enjoy the comforts that we have every single day. Now, this doesn't mean that God loves them any less than he loves us. It simply means that there is a promise of a better world and that they know they are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We have brothers and sisters who will be persecuted and killed today for their faith. They're the kind of saints that I'm not worthy to be in the same room with. All I want us to get is that God will sometimes withhold, sometimes allow, and sometimes take away from us that which is for our own good. And that's in his loving character to do those things. Look at verse 7 with me. And after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, Layla Jew sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if one stumbles in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I bet that as the messenger returned with the message from Jesus that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death, no doubt relief flooded the hearts of Mary and Martha. Yet, as time passed and Lazarus became weaker by the hour, Meanwhile, Jesus remained in Bethabar for two more days, letting events play out before he said, let's go back to Judea. This also had to be just incredibly perplexing to his disciples. Why, they may have reasoned, should we leave, leave a fruitful ministry for a life-threatening journey to the vicinity of Jerusalem? Because the situation did not seem to require the Lord's immediate attention or his presence. I mean, he himself had said that Lazarus is not going to die. And if Jesus did need to heal Lazarus, why not just do it from a distance like he had done before in chapter 4 with the Capernaum official son? Consequently in this, Jesus was implying that he was indestructible. So are you, to some degree. What I mean is, Hebrews 9.27 says, Every person has an appointment with death. Now, the negative side of that is that means that no matter how many airbags you have in your car, or how many injections of vitamin C, or how much fiber you eat, once your appointed hour comes, that's it. But you are basically indestructible until that time. 
God gives us all a certain amount of time and nothing can shorten it. The day of our life will not finish before it ends. Now this also applied to Jesus, of course. On an earlier occasion, when he was warned about the hostility of King Herod. He said this, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. What he was saying was, his life was not going to be cut short by his enemies for one minute before that appointed hour that had been set by the Father. And neither is ours. I am not going to die too soon. You are not going to die too soon. God has given us all a certain number of days, and we shall have them. So, if I can't die to my point in time, does that mean I can skydive without a parachute? You can. But you will find out if you do, that day was your appointed time. <laughs> when Satan told Jesus to jump off the temple in order to prove who he was, Jesus said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So in all this, what I'm saying is don't be foolish, but realize if you are a Christian, there is a period of time in which you can do your work without fear of being destroyed. Verse 11, please. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. No doubt the disciples were bewildered about several matters. First of all, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why did he permit him to get sick? We covered that last time. Even more, why did he delay to go to his sisters? Now the disciples' mistake flowed from their misunderstanding of Jesus' words in verse 4. They still believed that Lazarus' condition was improving and would continue to do so with adequate rest. I find it comforting that Jesus refers to death in terms of just going to sleep. The Bible often refers to death as sleep. In the book of Acts, it says that after Stephen was stoned, he just went to sleep. And the reason why the Bible uses sleep for death is because it is only temporary. Just like for you. When you go to sleep, it's not goodbye. It's just see you in the morning. Furthermore, do you realize that when you go to sleep, you no longer have any control whatsoever over your life? Think about that. Your heart keeps beating and your lungs keep breathing, but you are completely powerless to control any of that. That's how death is. We are totally helpless in ourselves. But what happens when you sleep? Well, eventually you wake up. And one day, if the Lord tarries, one day you and I will go to sleep, but we will wake up in a much better place. We understand this better when we begin to reflect on sleep and itself and the good that comes from it. Notice also that sleep is harmless. So also is death for the believer. David knew this. This is why he's wrote in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. 
Or again, Paul wrote, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we may note that sleep is also restful. It is a relief after a day of hard work. The book of Ecclesiastes notes that the sleep of a laborer is sweet. Side note, isn't it strange that when you were young and your mom told you to take a nap, you got pretty angry? Yet the older you get, it seems more like it's a reward than a punishment. Anyway, the disciples said to Lazarus, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. It is the same with death. Thus in Revelation we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. Once again, I remind us, sleep is just temporary. That is, we sleep to rise again. In the same way, death is just temporary. We die, but we do so in order to go to a world prepared for us by our Heavenly Father. Okay, at this point, Jesus ends their confusion and says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Here is an unmistakable indication of the Lord's omniscience. We know this since the messenger had merely said that Lazarus was sick and there was no way for Jesus to have heard that Lazarus had already died. Look at verse 15 with me. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. The place to begin with this verse is with the fact that God knows the future, as I've, as I've already said, and that only God knows the future. Think of the book of Isaiah, for instance. In the center section of that book, in a series of chapters dealing with the impotency of the pagan gods, God taunts the idols on the basis of their inability to tell the future. In Isaiah 41, we read this. Present your case, set forth your arguments, bring in your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so we, may, we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing and your works are utterly worthless. He who chooses you is detestable. The point of that passage is that no one but God can tell the future because no one but God controls the future. And the fact that he does tell it is one of the proofs that he alone is a true God. God does this not only to reveal the future to demonstrate that he is God, however that is one reason, he also does it to warn the ungodly of judgment and also to encourage those who are his own. Now, taken by itself, the first half of that second sentence is astounding where we read, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Glad, we say. Lazarus is dead, and you are glad? How can that be? But then we read on and find Jesus saying, in effect, do not be surprised at me at my saying, and do not be dismayed at the circumstances. Nothing ever happens to you that I have not first approved, 
and nothing is a proof from which I have not previously appointed good results to come from. Lazarus has died, yes. The sisters are sorrowing, yes. But the end will be good even for you. For in your case, the outcome will be a strengthening of faith in me, and you will influence millions. Now there was sadness in the home, but there was gladness in the heart of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he saw the big picture. He knew the end of the story. He knew that this event that began in grief would end in belief. In verse 16, we now turn our attention to Thomas. The apostle Thomas was one of two twins in the family because the name Thomas Didymus means the twin. Depending on your Bible translation, that may be the word used instead of twin. From his name Didymus, we get the Greek word, or English word, sorry, ditto. Thomas is known to history as Doubting Thomas, but there was much more to him. And the words here reflect his love, devotion, and courage to the Lord. His negativity led him to believe he would die if they went to Jerusalem. On the other hand, his love for Jesus was so strong that he was willing to die with him. I've come to appreciate Thomas. I think he gets a bad rap. He should be remembered not only as the doubting one, but also as the devoted one. For listen to what he says. When the other disciples were saying, don't go near Jerusalem, Thomas said, let's go and die too. I think that shows real devotion and true courage. So the other disciples were apparently trying to talk Jesus out of going out of fear of being stoned. And the disciples probably didn't want to go either because if Jesus was stoned, what would become of them? Did they have a fear about going back to Bethany also? It seems so. Thomas seemed the bravest of them all by saying, let us go with him that we may also die. So we should give Thomas some credit as he was apparently ready to die for the Lord unlike the other disciples at that time. I think it's unfortunate that Thomas has a label doubting Thomas because he was never called that in the Bible. That is a label that we have put on him, and I do think it's a bit unfair. Now, here's something for all of us to think about. Do you realize that one day, all of these people in the Bible that we talk about, we are one day going to have to meet face to face? That scares me. Because in the past, I've made fun of Peter. I've shook my head at Samson now, I've even called Thomas the doubting one. So I want to go on record today saying, Thomas, remember that day I was teaching, teaching a Calvary Chapel on chapter 11? I just want you to think that I think you're just fabulous. <laughs> but you know what I really like about Thomas? He was honest. He didn't put on religious airs. I've heard that in some churches, not this one, of course, but in other churches, sometimes a family can be coming to church and they may be fighting the entire way in the car. But as soon as they step in the church and someone says, how are you? 
It's all saccharine smiles and praise the Lord's. But that's not Thomas. He was just gut-level honest. For instance, if he didn't understand something, he would just tell you, Nope, I didn't get it. Please tell me again. Here's an example. Later on in John 14, Jesus will say, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And then he said, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. So Jesus says, You know where I go, and you know the way. Thomas immediately pipes up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. But here's the thing. All the other disciples were probably just as confused, but they just wanted to look spiritual. Kind of like in high school. When the math teacher would start talking about, if train A left the station at 5.04 going 48 miles per hour, and train B left the station at 7.06 going 62 miles per hour, how many people on train A would have red hair? Now, I was completely lost. And I was always glad when the one kid would raise his hand and ask her to explain again. That's kind of what's happening here. But not only that, if Thomas had not been honest enough to ask this question, we might have never been given the following verse where Jesus said, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. A few weeks ago before Jonathan read the scripture, he shared with us that he was having a tough time that week and really didn't want to be here. I've got to tell you, I love that. Not that he was having a bad week, but rather that he had the uh, honesty to admit it. And you know what? I bet some people in here probably felt the same way. But to his credit and yours, instead of staying home and watching big-time wrestling or Seinfeld reruns, you were obedient and came to God's house to gather with the saints. Now let me ask us this. If we can't be real and transparent here, then where on earth can we go when times are hard? I told her brother last week, it's a long, hard road to the celestial city, and we truly all do need one another. Well, back to the Apostle Thomas. Church tradition history tells us that Thomas traveled outside the Roman Empire as a missionary. He traveled possibly as far away to India to preach the gospel, which is another indication of his boldness. Now, not very much is known about the method of his execution, but church history says that he was killed by being stabbed with a spear. All I'm saying is Thomas gets a bum rap, I think. He was no more doubting than the rest of the disciples. And the only reason why he did doubt when the others didn't was because they had already seen the resurrected Christ. But if you remember, when the women came back from the empty tomb after seeing the risen Christ, the disciples, it says, also doubted and said they probably went to the wrong tomb. Now, to me, there is no doubt that Thomas was a strong believer and a powerful missionary used for the glory of God. As we finish up this morning, Thomas understood that following Jesus, a man of suffering and familiar with sorrow, can be a very risky business. 
Now, there may be words of consolation along the way, but a true commitment to following Christ sometimes will put us in the way of danger and heartbreak. I don't know how long any of you in here have been following Jesus, but you will find out as you go that when Christ calls us, He's not always calling us to the things of the safest, the easiest, or the least painful. Now, we might imagine Him saying, I'm going to go ahead and chart the course so that every step that you take will be going upward and onward, just blessing upon blessing. But he often charts a course that initially has us thinking, why there? Why that? Could you please pick something easier? Could you pick something with less sacrifice and danger? But Jesus often goes in those places where our response needs to be Thomas-like. He calls us to go and die with him. Now, it may not be a physical death, but we are certainly all called to die to ourselves and to our desires and to put his kingdom above everything else in our lives. We'll come back next week and we'll see how this has played out in the lives of Mary and Martha. And Lord, like Lisa was praying this morning, you are all in all. I don't know what else to say, and I'm not sure there's nothing else to say, really. That pretty much encapsulates everything for the life of a believer. You are our all in all. Lord, you know every heart in here, every heart that will hear this on the Internet. And I pray that you would work in that heart what needs to happen, whether it's salvation, sanctification, strength, whatever that person needs, Lord. I pray your Holy Spirit would reveal you to them. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In our first Sunday, I'll ask...